Welcome to Total Convexity, a weekly financial podcast that caters to professional finance individuals, high net worth investors, family offices, and other sophisticated financial professionals. Join our hosts, hedge fund manager Jim Wang and Henrik Neohaus, as they explore the interconnected world of global macroeconomics, central banks, and capital markets. Comprehending the intricate web of global macroeconomics, central bank policies, and capital markets isn't just an option, it's a necessity. Whether you're a chief investment officer, financial analyst, entrepreneur, or simply someone curious about how the global economy and capital markets function, this podcast serves as your compass through the intricacies of the global financial landscape. In each episode, we will delve deep into the influential factors shaping our world, from global economic trends and central bank policies to capital markets and trading strategies. We will demystify financial jargon, clarify complex numerical data, and provide you with insights from experts in the field. Total Convexity Episode 2 is recorded on October the 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Jim Wen. Joining me is my co-host, Henrik Newhouse. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm glad to return to the second episode of our podcast series. In our first episode, we discussed our investment framework and processes which focus on the three-way reaction functions between the macroeconomy, the monetary and fiscal authorities, and the capital markets, examined through the lenses of cycles, liquidity, and market structures. In this episode, given the severe sell-off in the bond market, I thought it would be helpful to discuss interest rates and the U.S. Treasury market. What we're experiencing now is the fastest hiking cycle in the past four decades, about, and bonds have never had three consecutive negative years. Now, Jim, do you think treasuries at these levels offer attractive buying opportunities? And if so, what do you think constitutes good value in treasuries? Jim? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think the answer to your question is yes. I think the sell-off in the treasury and the rates market represent a good buying opportunity. And there's numerous ways of determining what is the fair value of the interest rate, um, long-term interest rate. Uh, one way of doing that, I think people were talking about what is the R star, which is the interest rate is not restrictive to the economy, nor stimulative to the economy. And uh, the consensus right now is about 1%. Uh, real interest rate, and if you think about uh, the the long term inflation, it's about two percent, uh, let's say two to three percent. So we're talking about three to four percent of the long term interest rate. Right? You can think about as a nominal GDP as well. So some people say you know the interest rate should be uh, close to the long term nominal GDP. Um, if the long term real GDP is about two percent and the inflation is about two to three percent then they will argue for the interest rate of four to 5%. Uh, and uh, in our framework, we do not think these uh, are good ways of, uh, I mean, these are all good theoretical uh, kind of calculations, and uh, um, but they also give you a static, you know, long-term equilibrium, right? And it's not the whole useful for investment and a trading perspective. Uh, why I say that? The first is, you know, this estimate may or may not be true. I mean, we do not know, um, you know, what's going to be the long-term R star. 
And uh, if you recall, you know, long time ago, you know, if, in the eighties and nineties, no one will no one will believe that uh, the R star is going to be um, you know zero, right? Real interest rate, right? And uh, during the panic of financial crisis, uh, and or just you know a few uh, like five or ten years ago, and uh, people think the R star should be uh, should be zero, zero um, kind of real interest rate. Um, and uh, you know maybe one percent, maybe two percent. Uh, who knows, right? In the long run. Similarly, you know the nominal GDP. You know how do you estimate that? Even you can get nominal GDP estimated right for the next ten years, it will have it can have a you know a big durations, right? So I would say even you get an estimated right for let's say the interest rate should be four percent, you know five percent for the past ten for the next ten years. I mean I can see. You know, ten-year interest rate first go down to one percent, and then go up to, you know, seven and ten percent with an average of five percent. So I think um, that's interesting, you know, starting point. Uh, but I think the more interesting thing here to do is look at what's the direction uh, from here, uh, and how far uh, whether we can go from a current direction. So I think that's you know, should be a more interesting discussion, do you think? What do you think? Sure. So, okay. So let's go straight to the specifics then and, and talk about the details of the framework you use for determining which levels, especially given the current uncertainties or, or even, you know, confused state of the economy are, are, are attractive. How, how exactly do you do it? That's right. So what we're doing here is we follow the interest rate cycle. So if you look at it here, um, I have a one chart here. The red line is the Fed fund rate, and the blue line is our market cycle indicator. Um, basically, Fed will hike interest rate um, with, during the economic expansion when the inflation becoming a concern. By hiking the interest rate and tightening monetary conditions, it will result in economic slowdown and eventually recession. And once the recession hit, Fed will turn around and cut the interest rate to deal with unemployment rate. And this cycle rings and repeat, all right? And at the current juncture, the Fed is, as you mentioned, that we just have the uh, biggest, most drastic hiking cycle in the past four decades. We hike the interest rate from 0% to 5%, Within less than two years, so this is the this is the this is the most drastic hiking cycle, and at this point of time, and based on our indications, that it has become sufficiently restrictive to the financial of the financial conditions to cause the slowdown of the economy and eventually with a high probability of a recession. Uh, and so, if you if 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 we take that assumption that this is restrictive enough, then we think short dated the rates present a good opportunity. And then a lot of people will argue then the longer data of the interest rate may not present a good value because the curve is inverted, right? Uh, and if we look at history, curve typically are inverted um, or close to re-inversion in, 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 in when the short-dated interest rate at the peak of the cycle. In other words, before the recession hit, and uh, you know, curve are inverted, and that's the time is the peak of longer dated interest rate as well. So interest rate typically longer dated interest rate typically peak at the inversion point. And from that perspective, 
it also argued for the log-dated interest rate to come down as well. Obviously, during the recession, when the Fed resort back to the easing cycle, Fed will cut interest rate faster than the um, then you so the the short dated interest rate will fall faster than the longer dated interest rate, and uh, uh, and the, that's what we call the curve will steepen a uh, boost deepening during that phase. So that's why I think based on the current interest rate cycle, we think the interest rate is close to the peak because they have been very restrictive and they will cause significant economic damage and eventually will force the Fed to pause and revert. Now, this does not necessarily mean it cannot go higher for another, you know, 25 bips, 50 bips, and 1%, etc. I mean, it, 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 it does not pro provide a framework for the short-term movement, but it does provide a framework uh, in terms of where we are in terms of in the interest rate cycle. Right. So now there's something that, that let's turn to something that we hear a lot about in, in the media, which is the supply and demand imbalances when it comes to US treasuries. Now, what exactly are these and and what's the magnitude of these imbalances? Yeah. So I think you know the media have talked this about a, a lot about this, and uh, so we it doesn't mean that we have differentiated views. We're just pointing out the obvious one. But I think we want to underscore that the supply and the demand imbalance is so big, and that it deserves a big attention from the investors. So if we think about on the supply side, right, and uh, you know our budget deficit is uh, is a little bit more than eight percent. And uh, mind you, this is during um, the record low, uh, you know, unemployment rate. Okay, and uh, so if you take twenty-seven trillion of U.S. GDP multiplied by eight percent, that's more than two trillion of the, you know deficit, and that requires a new increase of net, uh, you know, issues of, of debt, right? So, so that that is very very big number. Now, I think we in the past. Um, the U.S. have run into a budget deficit before, although at a smaller number. And we do have a lot of, um, you know, uh, non-economic buyers for that. Um, you know, the, the first one, you know, we can think about is the em emerging market reserve managers like China uh, and uh, some other surplus nations like uh, Japan, right? And they have been buying uh, the U.S. Treasury. Uh, and... Um, uh, at the same time, since the global financial crisis, um, Treasury, uh, with, you know, Fed has been doing QE, so they have been buying uh, U.S. Treasury uh, as well. Um, and uh, and finally, after U.S. QE, you know, Japan and the U.S. Um, are doing um, you know QE as well, and a lot of the money actually came to the U.S. And the reason for that is because the U.S. offer higher yield. And in Japan and the U.S., in Japan and in Europe, the yield are significantly lower. So you know, so you you know, in the past, we basically have you know, Fed buying. We basically Fed is buying uh, Treasury, you know, emerging market, and the reserve managers were buying Treasury, uh, and the Japanese investor and the European investors because of the QE, uh, all the money came to the U.S. as well. Now going forward. The picture cannot be more different. 
from the Fed perspective, we are instead of QE, right, we are doing the QT. And uh, if you look at the past kind of Fed balance balance sheet shrink uh, in the past, you know, 10 to 12 months, I would say, you know, a decrease of balance sheet of 70 billion a month, right? And uh, and uh, China, instead of accumulating treasury and uh, the uh, running down of their uh, U.S. treasury uh, positions. Uh, and uh, now this chart, um, you know, I also, the, the Japanese investors and the European investors, and uh, they are not buying uh, U.S. treasury um, despite of the fact U.S. Treasury offers a higher yield. Now, I'm not saying that uh, there is no other, um, you know, no one is, you know, no Japanese and European investors buying. I'm seeing a lot of, um, you know, the conservative investors who are doing the currency hedgings. Um, they do not see the higher yield here. And this is because of the inverted yield curve. So I have a chart here uh, showing that, uh, uh, the excess yield in the U.S. Treasury after currency hedge, and you compare that with domestic GGBs, and as you can see, actually uh, is actually negative. So the red line is the hedged U.S. Treasury five-year um, after currency hedge. Okay, and uh, you take that the difference between this one versus the five-year GGB, as you can see, is negative one point five percent. So the after currency hedge Japanese U.S. Treasury does not offer the higher yield. Um, the similar thing is, you know, happens for the European investors. So the chart here is a little bit, uh, it's, it's different in the opposite direction. So there's the bond yield, five-year uh, bond yield, less than the hedged five-year Treasury. You can see after the financial, uh, after the global financial crisis, and once the European engaged the QE, uh, it's better for most time period. It's better to invest in the United States Treasury and hedge for the currency risk. Okay, and that's not the case um, uh, in the past uh, ten months. I would say twelve months. Uh, and for the European investors, actually, right now it just come close to zero. So they are indifferent. Okay, between the U.S. Um, you know uh, Treasury yield versus their uh, after currency hedge versus their bond yield. So. Um, so I would say the natural buyers are not there, and this will cause a significant problem uh, for the uh, liquidity conditions. Uh, should we talk about, you know, what the impact would be? Well, um, I, I was just making the point here that that you know you you just made a very strong case. At least I thought so. To for me and the casual observer that these. Um, imbalances indeed should would in a normal world lead to higher yields in the longer run now or do you think there is another conclusion one can reach jim yes no yeah so i i think this can be can be confusing right the law of economic of supply and demand will say if you have so much supply and you have a limited demand then that it should result the price lower. And in the treasury case, the yield higher. So lower price and a higher yield. Um, I would say that conclusion is too simple to draw, right? And the reason for that is because they, what we are looking here is basically a liquidity drain on the entire financial asset. 
across all the financial assets, being the interest rate, you know, a bond, equities, credit, uh, private investment, and etc. So this pressure will be distributed across all the financial assets. Now, how they're going to distribute it, it will really depend how these financial assets are priced versus the future growth and the inflation expectation. And also based on the relative valuation between among themselves. So I can give one example. If you if you look back when the five when the Fed started engaged QE, and basically, you know, you have uneconomic buyers, right? So in that case, the supply you have you have increased demand, right, from the uh, from, from from the Fed. And that will argue for the higher price of treasury and the lower yield. But if you can know, if you notice every time after the Fed started QE, and the treasury yield actually went higher, okay, and the stock price went higher. And the reason for that is because the growth and the growth pick up, earnings pick up, and uh, the money go, you know, uh, leave. Uh, the, the, the leave the treasury and the credit and goes to chase higher, um, you know, higher growth uh, assets such as equities and private equities and etc. Now, right now, you can also argue the reverse can be true because the 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 the, 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 the because the inch, because of the relative valuation among themselves, right, versus the forward-looking growth and expectation that can result, uh, you know, actually the opposite uh, effect. See, for example, the uh, the the right the 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 the, the bond market is the, the bond market is priced for a soft lending uh, scenario, and uh, the equity market is priced for the growth reacceleration. And if that's not the case then the equity, the money may come out of equity to fund the bond. Uh, and uh, the relative valuation between themselves also will, will uh, determine uh, where the pressure of this liquidity will be most severe. So, so that's what I think actually in the end, you may end up with the bond prices higher, yield lower, and with significantly lower overall the levels of the financial asset. Hmm. Okay. Um, right. I get it. So, okay. So liquidity pressures, how they play out depends on relative valuations between assets and the relative valuation of these assets to forward growth and inflation expectations. Fine. But let's get down to some practicalities because I think that's what we all care about, you know, partly at least. Um, so applying this framework, how, how do you reckon equities and bonds currently price in expected future growth and inflation? Uh, yes. So, yeah. So we'll talk about that. I Actually, I just forgot to mention that... Um, you know, the interest rate is, so people, you know, confuse between interest rate and the treasury um, yield, right? Uh, in the end, they are two different things, right? So the interest rate is basically, if you think about the interest rate, is basically the integration of the forward-looking policy rate. You know, so what the policy rate 
will be uh, one year from now, two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, right? That will give you um, the forward uh, interest rate, right? Um, and uh, what I meant here is that interest rate is primarily determined by the growth and inflation expectation because that in turn will determine the policy rate, correct? Now, the treasury supply and demand will result in the treasury yield deviate from that interest rate. And that deviation you can measure it, you know, for example, using the swap spread. So what I meant here is the growth and inflation expectation will be the primary driver for the interest rate. Now, the supply and the demand of the treasury will impact the swap spread, meaning the treasury yield against the swap spread. So coming back to your question, uh, does that make sense to you? And then we can come back to talk about sure. the implied pricing uh, you know, for the bond and, uh, and, and equity. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. So go on, yeah. Okay. So now let's start off with the uh, the Fed fund rate, right? With the, the interest rate. So for now, basically, market is priced, you know, fifty percent of probability Fed may hike, uh, you know, by the end of the year, right? And then after that, gradually it says, you know, Fed will start to cut interest rate. And if you look at a graph here, uh, the market is saying, you know, sometime in the middle of next, you know. Um, next year, you know, the Fed will start cutting interest rate and the policy rate may come from five, you know, five and a half and down to four, uh, 4.25% something, and then level out uh, from there. So that's kind of forward looking kind of the Fed farm, Fed farm rate. What does this tell us? This tells us, you know, the race market is back kind of a, you know, softish landing, right? In Paul J. Powell's word, it's uh, basically, you know, economy will weak, inflation will come down, but not a big deal. It's uh, it's very minor, right? So that's that's basically what the interest rate, you know, the market is is pricing for that. If you look at the um, the the credit and uh, the market, right? And uh, they basically saying there is no problem in terms of you know the rising bankruptcy rate, you know. Although despite of the fact the bankrupts, you know, uh, rate has come up a lot, and the Fed. Um, and, and the, the you know the banks have tightened the lending standard and etc. Uh, the the corporate uh, credit spread is very well behaved. So if you look at the U.S. you know kind of investment grade bond, um, is about 125 bips uh, of kind of the spread. And uh, um, you know what's the what's the upside? I mean it can go down to one percent, and that's not much upside for the credit. What's the downside? I mean, if you look at uh, you know during the uh, uh, the great great financial crisis, and uh, it can go all the way up to six you know six six percent, right? So that's for the uh, for the IGs. Now for the um, for the um, high yield market, the same thing. You know, we are at about four, you know four hundred thirty bips, right? And uh, that is lower than the long term average, right? And uh, um, and how you know in the rosy situation, and how how about how far you can go, and how much better you can get? I mean, yeah, you can get a 100 bips of the rally that will give you the lowest point in the past 20 years, but 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 downside is big. The credit spread can widen to 10 percent, 15 percent, 20 percent, depending on how severity um, you know the economic recession will be. All I'm saying here is the credit is supplies you know pretty rosy situation. 
Now let's talk about the equity. Um, you know, although uh, you know, talk about equity, you know, pricing. I think from the service, you see the equity price has come down by, uh, let's say, from the peak uh, of the towards the end of 2021 until right now, it's come down about 10 percent, right? Uh, give or take. And uh, if you look at the forward earning ratios, and uh, you know, it came you know just from uh, 20 uh, to 18 percent, right? Uh, and uh, then if you look at the uh, the uh, the forward earnings, uh, it was priced for the forward earnings to increase by um, you know 10 to 15 percent in the next year. So in other words, you know although equity price has come down, but it's mainly driven by the repricing of the multiple. By the way, I think that repricing of multiple is not enough, given the uh, given the uh, the the uh, the you know the 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 level of high interest rate, but nonetheless, is really driven by the you know compression of the multiple. Um, but in terms of earnings, is actually priced for the acceleration from here. So what are we looking here is basically uh, the equity market is priced for acceleration of uh, of the of the economy and the and the earnings growth. So I think in, in terms of the, in, in terms of, against our economic scenario, where we see here is that we see the growth is going to slow down. So we do not see, um, you know, we, we do not see the uh, uh, earnings acceleration here to be a likely uh, scenario. And we see inflation to come down against that backdrop and with a high probability of a recession. So against the, that backdrop, I think, the bond is probably is 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 a is a, a represent a better uh, valuation. Right. Okay. Well. Okay. But that, that's that's. Let me push an argument here. Um, so we have seen five percent interest rates before, and given how well the labor market still is working or how strong the market is and the economy, how resilient the economy is, that inf inflation is coming down and consumer spending is still fairly strong. So why should 5% interest rates be bad for the economy? Yes, um, the economy the strengths, the resilience of the economy has been much stronger than anyone expected, we think. Um, and that's good in, in some ways. But wh why do you then think that a recession is around the corner if it hasn't happened yet? Uh, right. So there's multiple questions. I mean, the first question you're talking about is the level. You know, you're basically saying that uh, we have seen 5% interest rate before, um, you know, and uh, why, why we're worried about 5% interest rate. I would argue that uh, the more important thing here is not a level of interest rate, but the, rather the change. So if you, let's say the Volcker cut the interest rate, um, and during the Volcker time, Volcker hiked the interest rate to you know close to 20%. And once you're lower to that, to 8%, right? That is a big stimulative, that's very stimulative, even though the interest rate was high at a higher level, which is 8%, right? Now, we are increasing the interest rate from 0% to 5%, and that is a tightening. So the magnitude 
is, 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 you know, the direction is very important. And the second thing is the magnitude, right? And the speed. So I would, we just talk about the magnitude and the speed is the most drastic. Now, if you consider QE as a QE was a way to cut interest rate below zero, which is argued, if you look at Atlantic Fed, I think they did a research basically saying when we were uh, at interest rate of zero, and uh, if you're doing the QE, uh, effectively, how much interest rate cut that you would have done uh, when you conduct monetary policy under zero interest rate environment. From that perspective, you can argue that range rate hike that we have is actually more than 5.5%, um, you know, from zero to the upper bound of 5.5%. 5, 5 so, so the the way of the, the the way that this will work into the economy, it takes time, right? And uh, and it take uh, I would we you know based on our work, uh, and this is about the time that the monetary policy would have start to have uh, the impact uh, into the economy. And I think this is a very visible um, as we see here right now. Typically, when you hike the interest rate, it first will work into um, the most interest rate sensitive sectors such as housing. And we see the housing market is basically frozen and we have the lowest transaction volume, right? And then the next one is auto. And we see the auto market is basically uh, has a severe decline, right? And then you will work into the other uh, other sectors, you know, work into the other sectors. Now, the inflation and the labor, these are the two data points that a lot of people quote about the economic resilience and typically are the two most lagging indicators. Right, yes. Um, they are lagging and who says they will not be lagging forever, right? Because right. there is this common narrative about structural reasons why inflation actually will remain sticky and it will be very difficult for the Fed to force it down to a low and sustainable level. So for example, we're right now going through this, these geopolitical changes that also affect the global economy. And we're reversing a lot of these developments that have been going on for the past 20, 25 years. So what I mean is that the uh, Chinese supply chains or the European and US supply chains to China have been are being reshored away from China to other emerging markets. And this transition transition in itself is expensive and will require restructuring. So that doesn't come cheaply. Um, it will also affect to extents we are not we can't really gauge right now how labor in these markets will be affected. Will it actually be as cheap and safe as we think it will be? once we put our industry there. And we'll, we'll know that some commodities, energy in particular, um, is not necessarily driven by economic rationale. It's uh, energy, crude pricing, is, is as much a political tool um, as, as an economical traded asset. And, and when it's used as a political tool, it tends to be used to the detriment of the US. So these are all structural arguments that the Fed can't do anything about. So do you still think, or do you really think the Fed will be able to push inflation down to 
whatever levels it, it, it has set its target on? Um, yes, we do. And uh, as a matter of fact, all the argument that you talk about that uh, we, you know, that you quoted, we uh, we we wrote about them and uh, in the fourth quarter of uh, 2020, where we expect inflation to pick up. And uh, a lot of them are secular forces, such as you know the uh, the, um, the 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 global supply chain reshoring uh, and the delinkage from the Chinese supply chain, and the lack of investment in the commodity will probably result in the higher commodity prices and all these things that you you, you talk about, and we completely agree. And uh, however, during the you know the, you know so so we expect inflation to pick up, and at the same time. We saw the rec record, you know, physical stimulus. By the way, they are monetized by the central bank, and uh, that's basically almost a a uh, a, uh, a destiny for higher inflation. Uh, and I would say during that time, basically, that lays the seed for the inflation that we saw in the past few years. Now, I think the opposite is true, where the Fed has tightened the monetary policy in enough, and uh, that it will result. Uh, in the destroy, you know, in the falling demand, uh, and eventually will result in the in recession, and inflation will inevitably fall, and that's a cyclical force. Um, and uh, in the in the context of potentially highly inflationary environment in the secular kind of an environment, um, and I would say, you know, during the pandemic time. Uh, or soon after that, the government, you know, push out a lot of money to 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 the uh, to the consumers, and uh, they cannot consumer they cannot consume the services because they are stuck at home. So they buy a lot of goods and services, and the supply chain certainly uh, kind of uh, you know exacerbate uh, the, the the problem and uh, cause a high inflation, and uh, then gradually that rotate into the service. Uh, after you know you after it is opened up and people start to travel and you see the service factor uh, inflation is going to pick up while the goods inflation have already been falling for quite some time and now I see all these factors you know the goods inflations and uh, and, the, and the service inflation and they all the way down uh, although I can see uh, the, uh, the the headline CPI to to come back up a little bit because one is the base effect right. And the secondly is that uh, we do see um, that uh, that the commodity price has come come up, uh, you know, uh, 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 a little bit. Um, but I think the key thing here is that uh, housing is a big component of the CPI, and certainly the big, you know, certainly is the most, you know, kind of sticky component. And uh, and I can see, you know, it's a very evident housing sector is materially slowing down, and the rent is coming down. Uh, unfortunately, is adjust very slowly. Okay, so so the the coin I can I can visualize the coin inflation come down and the headline CPI may rebound a little bit and overall the the inflation projection is to come down. Okay, so now uh, just 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 you know just to add to that, that does not mean that uh, in the long run that I do not see the inflation you know come back up again as you mentioned. I can see inflation to come down in the next one year and two year uh, during the recession time period. And then I can see physical stimulus to come in. Uh, and eventually it will force the Fed to monetize the debt simply because the market cannot absorb uh, those, uh, you know, uh, absorb the, 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 the increase of the treasury. 
and that will lay the foundation for another lag higher of inflation. Uh, so, so in this sense, I think the sequence also matters more than the level. In other words, we we expect inflation to come down and uh, uh, and during the economic downturn, and then once the stimulus come in, and that's the time you need to worry about inflation. Okay. Now, let's actually talk about the inflation target that the Fed has. Now, Chair Powell often restates that the Fed's aim is to bring down inflation to 2%. And this target of 2% has been official policy since Chair Bernanke introduced it in, I think, early 2012. Now, whether 2% is a reasonable target or was a reasonable target then, that, that, that's a different topic and, and an, an interesting one, especially if one tries to trace wh where this number comes from. Now, my question, though, is, is, is not whether 2% was a good target back in 2012. My question is more, given all the changes that we've seen since 2012, you know, the ge geopolitical changes, not only actual, but also the perceptions of geopolitical changes leading to all these economic changes and, and the reshoring and the changes in, 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 in supply and demand for U.S. treasuries. Does it really make sense for the Fed to stick to the same 2% target now as it did back then? Or should the target be something else? Uh, yeah, so... I think from our perspective, you know, I think the question is we don't know because we try not to make a judgment on, you know, whether it's the right thing or wrong thing to do. Uh, we just want to try to figure out what is likely thing they're going to do and uh, what's the consequence of the market. I mean, 2% is an arbitrary number to start with anyway, right? There's no official uh, kind of a documentation says so 2% is optimal. However, if your question is that, as a lot of people say, Fed will adjust the inflation target to three percent, and uh, and uh, and uh, therefore they are done with it, and therefore you know everything will be will, will be fine because they will live with the inflation and uh, with with three percent target, and uh, and everyone is happy. Um, and uh, I would say this is uh, not likely, and the reason because Fed Fed conduct monetary policy a lot is based on their credibility and the forward expectations. Okay, if they adjust. Uh, you know, the inflation expectation to 3%, that's almost indicate that they're giving up uh, of fighting of this inflation and it can be counterproductive. Keeping 2% of the inflation target and that will give them the credibility in terms of react to the inflation expectation, anchoring the longer term inflation expectations. Uh, so therefore, I do not see that they have, they are going to change 2% uh, you know, inflation target to 3%. Having said that, this is under the current condition. It doesn't mean they will not change that in the future, all right? So in the future, if if we have in, in, an, in the next cycle, say for example, they can, um, you know, once they want to, um, you know, boost the inflation expectations and, uh, and, uh, um, and the, or conduct the de facto yield curve control, where they can, where they can, um, you know, say the inflation target either explicitly or implicitly for three percent, but not at the current juncture. Okay, good. So we follow what happens in the world and we adjust our 
actions accordingly. We, we don't tell them what to do. Makes sense. So now all of this discussion really has, you know, leads to, I mean, you said it yourself, that, 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 that um, bonds are more attractive than equities right now. Now, do you have any other actual details to show to, to support that, that view? Uh, yeah, definitely. So I think we're talking about two things, right? The first thing we're talking about relative to the, the growth and the inflation expectations, where we think that a bond is better priced uh, based on our, our outlook of the growth and the inflation expectation. Now, let's say that we are wrong about this growth and inflation expectation. Let's say the market is the same as the past cycles and, uh, uh, you know, without knowing any, without making any judgment of the forward-looking growth and inflation expectations, where are they priced relative to each other? And I think, you know, we can take a very simple exercise. What you can do here is you can take a look at the three-month TBL is 3.35%, right? And a 10-year uh, you know, it's a you know, so we have an inverted yield curve, right? So it's about 4.75 percent, right? As a ten year, um, the um, the investment grade bond will give you a pick of a yield of about 125 bips, right? So that will give you six percent of the uh, of the yield, you know, a, a little slightly higher than you know six percent, uh, six and six and six and quarter, right? Of the uh, of the investment grade bond, right? Uh, and if you compare with that with the dividend, uh, with the earnings yield, right? The earnings yield basically is the inverse of the PE ratio, right? The PE, um, and that will give you a yield about you know five percent, right? You take the difference, that's about negative one percent. And if you look at the history, and this is at the lowest point. Uh, in the past, I would say 20, uh, more than 20 years, right? Uh, and we have a chart to show in that. And then actually historically, when this is moving, so we also construct a uh, kind of a two-stand deviation band uh, of that. And historically, when you go out of that two-stand deviation band at that magnitude, and typically the result adjustment of significant of the risk premium uh, for the equity market, um, as you can see here, you know, you can look at an example uh, during the tech bubble, uh, and the example of uh, Supreme, and uh, and this is basically the third time that uh, we went below that two standard deviation band. Um, obviously, you can also using the other uh, kind of we can do another exercise. Basically, uh, compare that uh, you know uh, bond uh, investment grade bond yield, right, which is a six a quarter, right, six percent, versus the dividends, which is about two percent, right. And two and a half percent, something like that. Uh, the difference is about four percent, right? So if you look at the history, right? So we have a chart here, uh, basically showing uh, the, the 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 equity risk premium measured using the dividend yield, uh, and then we also construct one standard deviation uh, from the five-year mean. And uh, as you can see, this is also in parallel to the um, you know versus the band that we have is in parallel. Uh, to old, you know, during the, the burst of attack bubble and uh, the burst of a high housing bubble and uh, is the lowest equity risk premium in the past, you know, 20 years, right? So from that relative evaluation perspective, um, that, um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the equity market 
it just does not offer you a lot of the risk premium, you know, uh, you know, among them. Now, I think that the exercise, if you if you look at a very simple way of looking at that, I, I talked about this before. SMP have dropped 10% from the peak level, right? And uh, now the uh, the PE ratio has adjusted from 20 to 18 times, right? So if you look at the history, um, you know, if you look at the history, um, let's say during the, uh, you know, the tech bubble burst, right? The uh, uh, the PE ratio has come down, you know, I'm talking about a forward PE, right? Come down to 16 times. And during the subprime, it comes down to, uh, 12, you know, times, right? So let's say they, they, they didn't come down, they don't, they, 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 they are not coming down to 15 times, they just come down to, you know, 15 times, right? So 15 times, 15 times, you know, from 18 times to 15 times, uh, that's three, that's more than, that's about 20 times, 20% of the return, right? 20% of the drop just for the, uh, for the PE, um, you know, multiple contraction. Um, now the earnings, historically the earnings are coming down, um, you know, during the recession is twenty percent, right? Uh, and uh, the the current forward earnings is priced for ten percent. So the delta between them is, you know, thirty percent. Thirty percent of the earnings readjustment, twenty percent of the compression of the multiple, right? That's a fifty percent. So now I'm now forecasting fifty percent of the drop. I'm just saying. In the, this is in the worst case scenario, right? A, we have a recession similar uh, to the uh, to the Great Depression. Oh no, to the uh, Great Recession and uh, the burst of you know tech tech bubble, uh, and uh, you know we have a I don't know kind of an average adjustment of the earnings during the recession. I mean you could go down fifty percent. Now let's talk about the upside, right? So the earnings, let's say you know economy reaccelerated from here, right? Uh, and I do not see the interest rate can go lower, right? If the economy reaccelerate, how would the interest rate come down? So in, in that sense, I do not, I see limited kind of a multiple expansion. So, you know, the market is already priced, you know, 10%, you know, 15% of earnings growth. Now you really need the earnings to grow 20%, right? In order to deliver a good return, right? At least to beat 6% of the yield of the investment grade bond, right? So, so I, I would say, if you look at the risk reward perspective, they're just not there, right? Similarly, I mentioned about, you know, the high yield, uh, the, the, the corporate spread, uh, which is basically, you know, you have a limited upside, right? So you can, you can compress the credit spread a little bit, uh, but not much. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the upside, the, the, the downside is, is a significantly uh, high. So that that's basically is my, uh, my my key point in terms of the relative valuation between them. It, I do not make a judgment in terms of where they will go. I rather, and that will require uh, two things: the assessment of the economy at this particular juncture, and also you know some of the indicators as you widely know that we follow. But uh, rather just say if we just come here and see what's the upside and downside. And then I think the picture is pretty clear to us. Yes, it, indeed it is. And uh, yes, it, it can become ugly. So, okay. So now we, we spoke a lot about methodology in our first episode, in our first installment. And we talked about the details of, of um, well, how you think today also. So uh, 
So you have this consistent framework that we've been talking about as and and as as with every model or every framework, there are certain assumptions that underpin the methodology. For example, in this case, in your case, uh, the reactive reaction functions of central banks and, and and so on. So my question to you is, are there any particular components of your framework, the way you think about the economy and the markets that you that that worry you in in the sense that, what is it that could change suddenly, unexpectedly, that would be a challenge for you in understanding the financial system? Yeah, sure. So, you know, everything we talk about is basically, I think we, what we're trying to do here is we try to understand where we are in terms of the implied pricing for the, for the market. And we compare versus what's the scenario that is likely to transpire. Well, it doesn't mean that they will transpire as we are expecting, right? So that's the uncertain component. So we're talking about the interest rate market is priced for a soft landing, meaning there will be a landing, but it's very soft. The equity market basically saying the soft landing is over, okay? And the economy is going to be reaccelerating from here. So that's the embedded pricing from there. The large movement deviate from this is going to be different economic scenario that is playing out against what is being priced. In our scenario, in our expectation, we think the growth is going to slow down, inflation is going to slow down, and there was a high probability of the recession. As a matter of fact, the reason the reprice of the interest rate give us higher confidence that the our base case scenario that it may have higher probability uh, to materialize. Now, we could be wrong if, let's say, the Fed, that, that, let, let, let's say the, uh, the, the, the government engage another round of a fiscal stimulus, right? And in that case, that, uh, that earnings may reaccelerate for the shorter period of time. Obviously, that may also create inflation expectation, and the Fed may resort to hike, tighten the monetary condition further. So in that case, it's uncertain whether stock can go, how high the stock can go, because on one hand, the earnings may go higher than what is currently already elevated level. And at the same time, the multiple may contract if the Fed have a credible reaction function. Otherwise, they will tighten further, right? Uh, and in that case, the bond have more downside and uh, the upside of the equity market, I would say, is questionable. Then the another scenario is basically the Fed preemptively cut the interest rate, all right, in the absence of the, the, the turmoil in the financial market or in the absence of the uptick of unemployment rate. I would say this is not likely uh, judging from the history. And typically the Fed will need uh, some extent uh, either from the financial market or from the real economy for them to really take the easing method uh, approach. And if you recall, uh, in the um, you know some people compare. I think the the basket the basket scenario that you can compare with the 1990s, where the Fed hiked the interest rate, right, and uh, that resulted in the bond massacre, right, in 1994. And then after that, you have a series of crises. You have Asian financial crisis, you have Latin American financial crisis, and uh, they all happened overseas. I mean, they were not impacting the United States, and uh, you know, in in any case, the Fed basically paused at the lower interest rate. 
And then you have a long-term capital hit, right? And the Fed, you know, lower the interest rate, right? And then ultimately that result in the tech bubble, right? And then the Fed hiked interest rate, and then we know what is the history. So this can really be prolonged, and that's not our base case. But if there's an accident and the Fed just pause and cut the interest rate, and if that accident does not impact general uh, in the financial you know, uh, market, and the Fed was able, is able to ease the financial condition fast enough and big enough, uh, and then I think that could engineer uh, a, a, a a situation that uh, that, the, that that all the financial assets really take off from there. But I would say because of the sticky inflation that you were mentioning before, and that make this one less likely. In other words, in all those time past period, and you can also argue like since the great financial crisis, um, the Fed was able to react. So we, we, we talk about there will be like one or two year mini cycle, right? Every time there is a weakness, Fed will come in and they're able to do another round of QE, right? And then in 2018, when there is a significant decline of the equity market, the Fed is just coming and, uh, and they say we are done and we're gonna cut the interest rate. So that is, not, that is not gonna be the case anymore because of the high inflation. Therefore, because of that, we think um, that uh, a decisive downturn is a more likely outcome. And obviously, you know, the uncertainty of a Fed change of, uh, of Fed reaction function certainly uh, can change our, our, our outlook. Okay, interesting. So we're coming toward the end of this port podcast. So I think it's time to um, try and get out of the weeds and uh, get some higher level uh, understanding or draw some conclusions and takeaways. So it seems to me that the primary lesson of, of, of this discussion is that the environment or system within which interest rates are determined is dynamic and highly nonlinear. So, for example, a relatively static observation about imbalances in the demand for and supply of treasuries is only one component of several interacting forces that form a constantly changing market price. The complex dynamics, in other words, may be well, what matters the most for the markets, not some um, theoretical, you know, long-term static uh, equilibrium that we may or may not reach, right? So it's, it's, it's the path that matters. And the second conclusion that follows from this, really, is that as geopolitical realities and perceptions of the realities change, um, invariably, the dynamics of price formation will be affected. Policymaking will be changed, for example. And it is very hard to tell how this will impact price levels. But of course, the more uncertainty there is and the greater the risks are going forward, the one outcome that I think we can deduce will be upon us is that there's a good chance that volatility will increase going forward. At least that's how it feels to me. Jim? Yeah, sure. I think that's a very good summary, Henry. And uh, we have spent a lot of time and maybe it's time to uh, to say goodbye. And uh, do you want to tell the listeners where they can follow us? Of course. 
wouldn't want to lose them. So you can follow us if you search for Total Convexity in your favorite podcast apps or on YouTube. We're there too. And don't forget to click on the subscription button so that you will be notified when we release the next episode. You can also follow us on X, that is old Twitter, where we have the handle at Total Convexity. And you can email us at totalconvexity at gmail.com. You can also find us at Substack, totalconvexity.substack.com. And we promise to be good guys. We will never spam you or haunt you with advertising or marketing. We will just talk about the markets and try to have some fun. Anything else, Jim? Uh, Not really. So thank you, everyone. If you like this free podcast, we would appreciate if you can pass along to anyone who would be interested. This concludes the second episode of our podcast, Total Convexity. See you next time. Disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Consult with a qualified financial professional before making any financial decisions. All investments involve risks. There are no guarantees of profits and investments may incur losses. The contents discussed in this podcast is not a recommendation for any specific investment. Past performance does not predict future results. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are their own and may not necessarily reflect the views of the hosts or affiliated parties. The podcast host and guests may have financial interests in companies or products discussed, and listeners should be aware that the opinions expressed by guests and their hosts may reflect biases. We strive for accuracy, but financial information can change rapidly. The content may not always be up to date or complete, so verify information independently. This podcast does not offer legal or regulatory advice, and listeners are responsible for ensuring that their financial decisions comply with applicable laws and regulations. Mentions of specific financial products or services do not constitute endorsements. Perform your due diligence before engaging with any financial offering. Listeners are fully responsible for their financial decisions, and the podcast's guests, hosts, and affiliated entities are not liable for any financial losses resulting from actions taken on based on the provided contents.